Hi, my name is Mariel Barocco, and welcome to Search Dog Diaries. Search Dog Diaries features behind-the-scenes stories from Search Dog, an award-winning documentary starring search and rescue canine expert Matt Sorella. In our last episode, we heard Sergeant Sorella talk to Director Mary Healy Jamiel about how he started his career on the Rhode Island State Police Force. But what kind of responsibilities come with working with canines? The work isn't always easy, but in this episode, you'll hear about how the difficulties of this career often go hand-in-hand with its rewards. Now here's Search Dog Diaries. So, after... I don't know why I have two years. Did it take two years to get of working with Andy before uh, you and Hannibal were certified? Where did I get that? Took a year. A year, one year, okay. So after a year of working with Andy, were there ways in which you thought or acted differently? Can you describe if, if you changed and if so, how did you change? Um, working with Andy was was a growing experience. There's no no doubt about it. And that first year, you know, I I did change. But how did I change? I matured. You know, I began to learn things about police work that most of my class, if not all of my classmates, had not yet experienced because we were still troopers with two years on the job and we were on the road. I mean, they weren't dealing with uh, any type of specialty yet, you know, and... Here I was already now trained and certified in uh, trailing. You know, the ability to have a dog that could take the scent from an article of clothing or from a footprint on the ground uh, or from the general location of where they were, had, had been standing and, and get a trail and locate that person. So, you know, and of course for me at that time it wasn't very popular because I, all I was doing was causing a, disru- a disruption at the barracks as far as, you know, my duty status and my scheduling and what I was, you know, where I was going to be from day to day, you know, with, with manpower being short and every trooper needed to be accounted for to get through the day, you know, here I was being requested to help for on a search uh, at a different part of the state and not being available to, to be on the road. So it, it was... Um, well, go, a I tough want, position to be in. I want to go back, though, to um, your work with Andy. In yeah. terms of your own manner of thinking or of acting, were there specific ways that you saw yourself that, that you had changed as a result of that? I, I began to feel more and more comfortable with, with identifying with this new role. There's no doubt. And I began to see that that this was going to take me in another direction. And that was a growing experience because I knew that having a taste of this, there was no way I could turn back. No way I could go back to, you know, doing the sometimes mundane tasks of a road trooper uh, when I've had this experience, especially at, at that stage of my career. So sure, it was a growing experience. So am I correct in, this, in saying that being a search and rescue canine officer, it's actually a way of life. It's not just a service in terms of your occupation, but 
but it's actually a way of life because you always need to be ready to search and you're always in partnership with your animal. Being a canine handler is a way of life. There is no doubt about it. Um, if you're married, your marriage works around it. Uh, the life of your children work around it. Um, if you're not doing it as part of your full-time job, the life after work becomes part of canine. And canine becomes part of that life. And, 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 and that's what you do. I mean, uh, if you don't do this as a full-time profession, then just about all your spare time is used up doing it. And the bond with your animal is such that, well, let me put it to you this way. You can't put your animal away at the end of the night and bring it out of the closet the next morning and expect the animal to work the same way for you each and every day. You have good times and bad times. You have high uh, highs and lows in 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 our own lives as human beings and the dogs too. So you have to find, as time goes on, a happy medium where you can live a life that's civil enough for your family and if, you know, for your wife and your children and for your own sanity uh, and still maintain a regular training curriculum, maintain that mentality that uh, you're going to be ready no matter what. Uh, you know, you're not going to go out and get drunk on weekends because primarily weekends is when people go out and, and, and recreate. And if you're not going to be available because you like to go out and have a few and you can't be dependent on. You know, that, so that changes things, how you socialize, who you socialize with, you know, what you do with your time after, after hours in order to wear that pager or have that cell phone with a number that's, that, that a police department has at the ready when they need you. We here work such... Uh, such long hours with so, so few canines, I'm on call 24-7 every day of the week. Does that get old ever? <laughs> it just becomes a way of life. I don't drink much anyway. I don't generally stray far from home anyway. I mean, there was a time before I was married that I, I wouldn't even leave the area because I just had a feeling I was going to get a call. And in the earlier days, before there were as many dog teams around as there are now, uh, I, I would get calls. And I remember my soon-to-be wife at the time saying, it seems like every time we go out, you get a search call. Or every time we want to go somewhere, you get a search call. And of course, I stop, turn the car around, and go on the search. Uh, so, and, and she was right. But that is the nature of what we do. It takes a certain type of person to want to do that. Do you often feel like have a sense you're going to get a call and then it happens? I, uh, I at times I can sense when a call is going to come in. Uh, a lot of times, you know, it, it's based on the weather. If the weather's really good. It's a sunny weekend. Um, traffic is reportedly very heavy. There are a lot of boaters out. A lot of people camping. A lot of people hiking. Um, there's a good chance that some, at some point during the day I'm going to receive a call of a missing person. You know, sometimes when we get there, the person's found by then, or it turns out uh, the person uh, found his or her own way out, or in fact they, they were just unaccounted for briefly. You know, mom and dad was able to, to find where their children were, and 
the pressure's off. But um, sometimes when I get there, it turns out to be exactly what they feared, a missing person search, and turns into a full-blown effort. Absolutely. Going back to uh, Andy, does he have a special, um, you know, when you look at him working with dogs, is it, you know, identifiable to you now, his sort of innate sense to work with the dogs that Absolutely. you couldn't see that when you were young? I, I told Andy Redman around the same time I, I received that tongue lashing from him in reference to the, the nine missing prostitutes during the New Bedford Highway murder case. Um, around that same time, I remember saying to him, despite everything I was going through, I said, Andy, I want to be just like you. Uh, not really, maybe perhaps not really realizing the magnitude of what I was trying to become. More importantly, to be at, at the to carry the weight that he's carried, to develop the skills as he has developed them and as he has, as he has applied them and to come up with the success that he has had uh, and to be consistent for 20, 30 years now, uh, 30 plus years is an absolute, absolutely remarkable, uh, almost, incomprehensible to someone starting out could do. Overwhelmingly incomprehensible. And here I was wanting to be like him. Who was I? He had to laugh. He had to have laughed inside, although I really don't know. Maybe he was, I mean, he had a way of just looking at you without any emotion most of the time, unless he was busting you up or yelling at you. Otherwise, it was a straight face. So, he was a difficult guy to read, and um, he was a person I wanted to become. Uh, and, you know, here it is uh, 20 years later, and, you know, I have found myself looking back. I've traveled overseas to other countries. You know, you're only one piece of the puzzle. And, and this is where Andy Redmond was, was great, because he would teach you this. He would share this information with you through the School of Hard Knocks. And when you were done with the day, you felt like you really earned it. Uh, and you had, you were charged with the responsibility of using it well. And I thought that's where I was good. Good enough to take the information he gave me to hold it sacred, uh, almost like a student of martial arts who looks at his sensei or her sensei and says, you know, this person is a 10th degree black belt. You know, I'm a green belt. Uh, I've got a long way to go. Um, and they listen to every word. And they go out and they practice everything that they learn from that sensei without changing a thing. Did your relationship with Hannibal change from when he was just your pet to when he was your working dog? Oh, definitely. Uh, once you train your dog in search and rescue, there, there. You have a, you have a, a respect for that animal that you never had before, because someone's life depends on the actions of that animal, on the training of that animal, on on the bond that you've developed with your dog, and 
the willingness for that dog to want to go out and look for that person. Uh, and if you're a, the type that doesn't take it seriously, that's just out to have a, a you know, walk in the woods for the weekend, you've got nothing better to do with your time, uh, that type of energy will reflect. And you won't be up to the task, and your dog won't be up to the task, uh, as, as others are. And you'll, you'll end up staying back, you know, or you won't be put in the high probable area. Uh, because you you won't you won't you will not have come to the to the search with the tools you really need. I think we asked this question: How did Hannibal change over the course of your training with Andy? You know, what did you discover in him that you didn't know existed? You know, Hannibal never really changed, as far as his personality goes. Despite all the training we, we went through with Andy. Hannibal was Hannibal. He was an aloof, 130-pound, greatest first mountain dog that just loved to hang around people. Um, he was slow. He was methodical. Um, but he worked because I wanted him to work, and he did it for me. He wasn't crazy about it. He enjoyed his life before as a civilian. He, um, he did it because I wanted him to do it, and he did a great job. He was a difficult dog to, as a first dog to learn how to work. Very subtle, very, very uh, minor changes in body language. Even though he was trained to alert with a down, a lie down when he found a body, uh, it often had to be a real strong odor for him to actually give you the lie alert. Otherwise it was a change in breathing, A jerking of the head, a particular way he carried his tail. Uh, and these were subtleties I, as a new handler, had to learn to pick to read. And that, that's kind of hot. That's tough. But once I learned how to read him, uh, I, could, I could tell as easily as if he could write it down and, and give it to me uh, in black and white. What's stacking, by the way? You were talking about stacking that Rita, telling her her dog was doing that, was breathing. What is, can you just describe what that is? I'm just curious. Sure. Stacking is a term we use when we hear the dog uh, taking in deep breaths. Uh, generally, it's a sign that they're in scent and they're taking in a lot of it, um, or they're taking in deep, deep breaths to take in as much scent as they can. You generally hear that, that deep chuffing noise that may come repetitively, and uh, it generally is a cue that your dog is an odor or working odor out and to pay attention. So you're listening to them. You, oh, well you're absolutely, ab yes. You're listening as much as you're watching them. Yes, stacking requires you, if you hear your dog breathing, in that, breathing like that and you're able to identify it as stacking, then yes, you're listening carefully and you have to listen uh, for something like that. You're certainly not going to see it. All right, how are we doing on time? Do we need to stop? No, I just wanted to lower this. Okay. We've got maybe a half hour. Okay. Well, I mean, if, if you're getting tired, though, too, we, we can just, we can stop. Oh, I'm all right. Um, yeah, you have pretty good stamina. <laughs> Bring it on. Must be your, your trooper military status. <laughs> um, I mean, some of these questions now seem silly, but um, you still maintain a relationship with Andy today? And you could just one sentence response. Oh, uh, Andy Redman and I are very close to that today. In fact, we teach together. Uh, in some cases, uh, I fly out 
I have flown out to Seattle and taught with his team. Uh, we work together uh, uh, under our own businesses and, and teach around the country, and it's working out very well. Is it a different relationship, or does the dynamic still feel the same? Oh, no, the relationship is, has definitely evolved. The, um, you know, we're more on uh, more of an equal playing field now. Um, he'll always be a teacher to me, and there'll always be something that he'll be able to show me that, that maybe I didn't know or didn't pick up on. That's just the nature of it. But, uh, you know, we work more together now as trainer and trainer than trainer and student. I think there's something to working with canine that tunes you into the present moment more than, say, if you're search and rescue, air search and rescue, or, you know, use technology, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, I'm just assuming yep, that, but maybe yep. I'm wrong. By virtue of the fact that you're, you're, your main tool your purpose to exist in this business is because you have a search dog changes your outlook a little bit on what you do. And the main reason is your dog is on borrowed time. You may spend two years or more teaching uh, your dog a particular discipline. And depending on the age of the dog when you start, you know, you may only have five working years maybe a little more before the dog retires. And that's if the dog lives a full life. I mean, you know that one day you're going to have to see your dog uh, pass away. And it, it is going to be, uh, for those who have never been through it, an absolute devastating experience. And only to go through it again by getting another dog and, re and training a new dog and, and, and going through his or her life uh, and as a faithful master, you know, when the time comes, putting that dog down or uh, seeing that dog through to its end. And it, it's different than someone who does search and rescue, I think, um, flying helicopters or uh, swift water rescue or something to that effect. Because your, your talents only go so far. You have to depend on that dog. You have a lot working against you because they are living and breathing animals versus a machine. And so it's, it's bittersweet in that regard. Search Dog Diaries was produced by Lucy Bean Films, directed by Mary Healy Jamiel, and edited, mixed, and recorded by Mariel Barocco, with original music from the Search Dog soundtrack by Tim Maurice. Copyright 2018, Lucy Bean Films. Sign up for our Search Dog Diaries newsletter. It features extras from Search Dog, along with interviews with leading canine experts, veterinarians, and the stars of Search Dog. Visit searchdogmovie.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can see photos and videos of Matt and the dogs. I'm your host, Meryl Barocco, and we hope you have a treat-filled week.